The Retro Lounge is a look back into the archives of the Recruiters Lounge podcast with Jim Stroud and Karen Matinen. The Recruiters Lounge podcast posted weekly between the years of 2005 and 2010. With energy, wit, and opposite points of view, <laughs> Jim Stroud and Karen Madden discussed, debated, and squabbled like children over HR issues that affected the workplace and society overall for the benefit of all who would listen. Way back, wow, it is way back, <laughs> April 17th, 2006, I had the good pleasure of interviewing John Sumser. And in our discussion, he, we discussed uh, recruiter ethics, diversity, and a whole lot more. Listen to our conversation as it was back again on April 17th, 2006 in the Recruiter's Lounge, right after this special message. Recruitment marketing, as compared to maybe employer branding, is all about getting your message and your story in front of the right audience. It's a lot to manage and what Practic Talent does for our clients is we help centralize so you have one partner, one vendor to help you manage all those relationships. And not only that, we help you track the effectiveness of every media dollar you spend on hiring so that you know in real time that you're getting the greatest ROI for your marketing investment to attract great talent into your company. We help our clients with recruitment marketing in a couple ways. One is a recruitment marketing strategy. And with that, we really take the time to help you build the right strategy. And then we get mutual approval on that strategy before you spend a single dime. The other way we do this is through our agency of record service. This is a partnership with you where we're able to reach out to publishers on your behalf to negotiate better pricing, to execute on media campaigns, uh, and really act as an extension of your team. Some of the benefits that our clients have seen working with Practive Talents Recruitment Marketing Services is an overall reduction of 30% cost per applicant. That's really significant. It's showing that we're able to leverage great technology, programmatic, and we're also flexible and scalable. We're platform agnostic. We're always going to use whatever the greatest and latest technology is, whatever the best platforms are to help create efficiencies in your media purchasing so that you're always on the cutting edge. For more information on Proactive Talent, visit them online at proactivetalent.com or click the link in the podcast description. Hi, I'm Jim Stroud. Welcome to the Recruiter's Lounge. The Recruiter's Lounge is a podcast of news, interviews, and commentary on the recruiting industry, and it was designed with you in mind. So sit back, relax, and enjoy your time in the Recruiter's Lounge. You're in the Recruiter's Lounge today. I'm your host, Jim Stroud, and here with me in the lounge chair is John Sumzer. How are you, John? All right. How are you, Jim? Doing pretty good. Uh, I'm really excited that you're on the podcast with me today because I'm sort of a fan of your work. When I first uh, ventured into recruiting, I think back in 97, I was working at MCI, I used to read your, your newsletter quite a bit back then. Um, how long have you, have you, how long have you uh, been having the electronic recruiting news? Let me ask you that. Oh, we, we were, I, I, I rounded off and say we were the 50th website. We started um, covering electronic recruiting back when there were four job boards. Wow. Um, and um, it's been an interesting ride ever since. So it was 1993, actually, when we started. Huh. Okay. 
I know you have more than electronic recruiting news. Uh, what are all your different properties that you sort of publish from your site? There, there, there are two major publications and then a consulting business. The, the, the uh, electronic recruiting news is the most widely known. Uh, but about 40,000 people subscribe to it, and it's a daily look at recruiting. And then there's the Interbusiness Bugler, which is actually the most widely read. We have about 50,000 subscribers to the Bugler, and it is a synopsis of the day's news and press releases and a calendar of events for the industry. Hmm. I, and the, go ahead. No, I, I bet since 93 you've seen a lot of trends come and go throughout the industry. Oh, it's, you, you know, re recruiting is a uh, boom and bust industry. So right now, one of the most interesting things about recruiting is that there are 100,000 new recruiters uh, and not much in the way of training for them. And they've all come on board in the last six or eight months. Hmm. So the ranks swell from 125,000 a year ago to about 230,000 right now. Where do you think these new recruiters come from? Are they leftovers from the Web two point Web one point bubble? I mean, you know what people people who have been recruiters and get laid off or fired or promoted out of being recruiters never come back. Hmm. These are these are more people who got into recruiting the same way that you did. <laughs> I sort of stumbled into it myself. Yeah, everybody sort of stumbles into recruiting. It's it's an interesting profession in that regard. There's no uh, degree program that that you can get to be a recruiter, you just stumble into it. That is that is true. No one, no kid says, I want to be a recruiter when I grow up. Not one of them, although some adults love doing it. Yeah. It's, you know, it's just so tied to the moves in the economy that it's hard to make a, a lifetime career out of it. I was chatting with a buddy of mine today about the, the typical lifespan of a recruiter. What, what do you think it is, like about five years? It depends. It depends. I mean, this, this, this raises one of the, the questions that we're going to talk about. Recruiting is a hard job because you have to you have to sell a company that you may not totally believe in if you're on the inside. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a burnout equation. If you have to um, persuade people to come to work for a company that maybe you're not so happy working for, um, uh, you can only do that so many times before it starts to get to you. That and the, the 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 way that recruiting is currently practiced is so reactive that uh, most people who do recruiting are on the short end of the uh, firefighting list, right? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. But that sort of begs the question. Um, I guess we're sort of jumping the topic. Truth in advertising. Um, how much of it is out there? I mean, between jobs that are posted and recruiters, um, I guess, selling used cars. At least some of them, anyway. Uh, and then, as you said, how can a recruiter really do their best work uh, selling the company if they don't really believe in the company? If it's just uh, another job to them. Yeah, but, well, there's, so there's, it's, it's very interesting to me that, that this is this is probably the biggest ethical question in recruiting, and it's paid the least attention. You start with the fact that job descriptions, which is the, the you know the stock and trade of a recruiter is a job description, and job descriptions are generally uh, torn out of a book by a hiring manager who's very busy and doesn't look very closely at. Hmm. Uh, yeah, that's not a hundred percent true, but but I would say seventy five percent of the time 
um, the very basic requirements of the job have not been carefully articulated. So when a recruiter goes to advertise this position or talk to somebody about the position, there's all sorts of uncertainty involved in what the job actually is. Um, you couple that with the fact that in an information economy, jobs change as rapidly as you can imagine. So, that, so it's often the case that you, the job that you get hired for is the job that was advertised. It, it becomes very difficult to maintain a high integrity, honest environment in which to sell or communicate the details of the job. And it, that, that's a huge component of the burnout that recruiters face. They're, they're sort of, you know, the really valiant ones imagine themselves to be dancing on their feet, weaving a, um, a wonderful web of BS and um, trying to get the job done with not enough resources and not enough information. And what suffers in that process are the institutions that employ those recruiters and the people who get those jobs. Well, do you think that a lot of recruiters, are, to your point, are just sort of handcuffed by certain HR rules or regulations that say job, the job descriptions have to meet a, a certain generic code so that they can't be sued, so they can't, per se, write a job description in everyday, normal, layman terms? or make it fun and interesting all the time because they have, they have to follow this this uh, stringent set of rules and maybe that just sort of keeps the, um, what am I looking for, it keeps the bland job descriptions out there and which sort of handcuffs recruiters in a lot of ways because they have to follow these rules because companies don't want to get sued. How does that play oh, into I, things? I, that's part of it. And I certainly have never met a good recruiter who was happy about the fact that he reported to an HR manager. <laughs> that it's HR's fault um, because there's so much there's so much wraparound about not wanting to be sued. You can say that for a while, but if you say that about everything, you've got to wonder about who'd work in an environment like that. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, you, it, uh, just just because you have somebody to blame for the fact that things are bad doesn't mean that it's okay to keep it bad. Well, do you think that um, companies in that case should really? Um, put more of a focus on, say, company blogs, or maybe not even blogs that are per se sponsored by the company, but they can point to personal blogs or employee blogs that talk about the culture of the company. And they can say, see our bland job descriptions, but don't really pay attention to that. Pay attention to our blogs that that really talk in real people <laughs> language. You know, what, what do you think of that? I think I think there's something to that. I don't I don't think it's a perfect answer in my sense of imagination, but. <laughs> think that, that what, what's really important about blogging isn't blogging, but it's the fact that organizations are getting more and more transparent. Mm-hmm. You, you know, um, um, just, just think about all of the blogs at a company like Oracle. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, what you see when you look at all those blogs is that there really isn't one company. There really isn't one monolithic employer of 40,000 people called Oracle, but there's a lot of people working there who work for a particular boss in a particular area, and that's really the company they work for, not Oracle per se. So, so getting some visibility on that is, is particularly useful for, 
useful for helping people to understand that companies are not big things. Companies are a lot of little things all lumped together. Hmm. Hmm. So it would probably be advantageous to a company to really promote different departments or different projects within the company instead of as the company as a whole? Well, you know, it's really weird because, because people who are CEO types, mm -hmm. they really like to believe that they're in charge of the whole thing. <laughs> and, and, you know, you've been, to, you've been to enough meetings where the CEO walks in and everybody rolls their eyes. Right. But the CEO's not in charge of very much. Um, but but if, you, if you want to get approval to tell the world that the company is really a lot of little individual pieces rather than one big giant piece, um, the C-level people get kind of antsy about that stuff. And that's, that's the conflict. Blogs and the latest, the latest technology are all part of a move towards the flattening of hierarchies. And the people who are at the top of those hierarchies don't like that very much. So it's because it takes all the authority out of, well, not the authority, but it takes the control out of their hands. So I guess it uh, sort of goes to your leading by committee, in a sense? Um, I don't know that it takes all of the authority out of their hands, but it certainly makes makes it important that you manage in a new way. Mm -hmm. You know, in Europe, in Europe, if you're the CEO of a company and you screw something up, the guy in the mail department feels perfectly okay telling you that you screwed it up. Um, really? In America, that's heresy. Um, the guy, the guy in the mail department, told um, Larry Ellison that he screwed up. The guy in the mail department would get fired. <laughs> yeah, that'd be a short day. <laughs> but but it's what you, it's what's expected of you if you're an employee in a European company. You're expected to care enough to tell the CEO the truth. And the CEO culturally is is, is prepared, or or I guess culturally um, conditioned to accept it. That's right. Huh. That's right. It's better. It's better because they've had recent experience with how bad really big hierarchies are. You know, mm -hmm. um, um, there are not many people in Europe who have completely forgotten the lessons of World War II, so they're distrustful of leaders who are insulated and not able to take uh, feedback from the ground floor. That brings up an interesting point to me. Um, I was thinking, I want to talk, pick your brain a little bit on uh, diversity, uh, recruiting. Um, what is, with the world becoming more flat, I'm, I'm sort of citing this book, The World is Flat, by um, Thomas Friedman, I believe it is. Really good book. Are you familiar with that book, by the way? Oh, yeah. It's wonderful, but wrong. <laughs> wonderful, but wrong. Tell me how it's wrong. Well, he says that the world is getting flat, and I, w I would say that the world is getting local. Um, I mean, there's some interesting things. I have business partners all over the planet now, and, and in that sense, um, the world is getting smaller and less hierarchical. Mm -hmm. But those business partners are all in the area that I'm in, so it's really just a different form of being local. It's not a big global thing. It's really people in recruiting. You know, so it's not, I don't know anything about uh, um, lots of industries in India, although I have some very good relationships with some people in recruiting in India. So, so I find that the world isn't getting flatter or smaller like Friedman says. It's getting more local. Hmm. It's way easier 
easier for people who are in a specific discipline to reach out to other people in a specific discipline. What? Um, but that doesn't mean that everything's smaller. Um, chemical engineering is way far away from me. It's not flatter. How do they handle um, diversity, say, um, in India when they have so many different uh, religions and, and dialects and that kind of thing? Well, you, you know, you know, it depends, right? In, in IT, in the in the high tech areas, it doesn't matter what you are. If you can do the work, you got the job. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's 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 really what happens. The story with diversity is diversity only matters when there's a surplus of people. When there's a shortage of people, you, you know, you, you've been, in, you've been in, in situations where you end up working with people that you couldn't imagine working with because something's got to get done right now, uh, and there's a sense of urgency, and the only people you have to choose from are the people who are right there and available, so you do what you got to do. Uh, insert warm button seat. Yeah. <laughs> Diversity recruiting, as we know it, would even exist over the next few years. With uh, I heard recently about um, the dropout rate here in the in the states is like obscene, thirty percent uh, or something like that. Have you heard anything like that? I think it was reported in USA Today or something like that. Oh, I saw I saw I saw that story about the about the thirty percent dropout rate. Yeah, and I was thinking like if the dropout rate is is that astronomical, the companies wouldn't have a choice but to hire. Um, Internationally, or maybe just continue to build um, different branches in different countries and so forth. And that being the case, will diversity be irrelevant because it'll just be a way of life? I mean, it is now, but it'll really become that in the future, I'd imagine. Diversity is, you know, my kids, my kids who are all just recently out of college, mm-hmm. won't work for a place that isn't obviously diverse. Okay. They understand that if you've got a company that's full of white people, um, that the company's going to fail because it doesn't have a broad enough perspective. Um, and that's what they've been raised on, you know, that, and, and we have a whole generation of kids who've been raised like that. Um, so the, the idea that, that diversity is optional is sort of the first thing to go. It used to be that you could get away with in most boardrooms say, oh, diversity, that's some politically correct BS, right? Mm. Uh, it's just not true anymore. Diversity is a survival mechanism. The workforce has to be able to have different kinds of people from different kinds of places in order to continue to grow. Um, and so, yeah, diversity recruiting will, will start to diminish. It's mostly useful now in companies where... Um, 
where there's a problem because the company has been too closed or too unwilling to look at different points of view over time. Hmm. John Sumser of the Electronic Recruiting News, thank you for your time in the Recruiter's Lounge. Hey, thank you. This is fun. Well, that's it for this show. You've been a wonderful audience. If you like what you heard, love what you heard, or <laughs> just plain hate what you just heard, uh, let me know. Your feedback matters. You can reach me through my website at jimstroud.com slash podcast. That's J-I-M-S-T-R-O-U-D dot com slash podcast. So until next time, I'm Jim Stroud, and you're not. And so this ends this edition of the Retro Lounge, home of classic episodes of the Recruiter's Lounge podcast. If you haven't already, uh, subscribe now so you don't miss a future episode. Okay, cool. Until next time, bye-bye. That's what ransomware is all about. It's psychological pressure. Ransomware, when your computer's hacked into and your data held ransom. Attacks are on the rise, and Russian gangs are making billions of dollars. The moment I got that message, I knew our greatest fears that we ever have are starting to come true. The post-Cold War era is over. Dot com, the hacking. A new season from Crowd Network with me, Katie Puckrick. Just search for dot com, that's D-O-T-C-O-M, and subscribe.